0: Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension.
1: And my name is Natalie Hoidl. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension.
0: We've been doing this podcast over the last few years, and we're changing the format a little bit for this season. We're going to do some pre-recorded interviews in a three-act style where Natalie and I will introduce an episode by talking about why we decided to do it. It might not be us doing it, but we will introduce it. Then we'll have the second part, which is the actual interview performed by us or other people. And then the third part will be a wrap-up. What did we learn? Where can we go from there? How are we doing this, Natalie?
1: So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest
0: Management Center,
1: and our license for Transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension.
0: And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Enjoy the show. Hey, Natalie. How you been? I've Ben. Great. How about you? I've been pretty good. I've, I got to do this interview that I've been really excited to do with some folks from Ohio. I interviewed a woman named Anna Teston from the USDA ARS.
2: Anna rhymes with banana. Unless you're
0: British, they just say it however they want. And a guy named Bob Filbrin from Earthen Goods Farm in Ashland, Ohio. So the first time I wrote a note to you, Bob, I wrote Philburn instead of Phil Brunn. All that happens all the time. He also is the farm manager at the Muck Crops Research Station in Willard, Mm -hmm. Ohio. But um, he's mostly in this interview as a farmer who grows greenhouse crops. And he uses this process called anaerobic soil disinfestation. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. Anna does research on this. And so she has been working with Bob as a research collaborator, along with a bunch of other growers in Ohio to talk about this process in which you can basically clear the soil of pathogens, because it's super common in a hoop house to uh, use the plastic for as long as you can use it for. And you grow the most (laughs) profitable crops year in, year out. And after about year three, you really start to notice a decline. And by year eight, it's almost a joke. Sometimes they just don't do anything. And it's because of a buildup of a few things. Uh, The diseases are corky root rot, black dot root rot, uh, verticillium wilt, and also root knot nematodes. At least that was what was found in Ohio in a big survey across several growers. And so Anna started to look at this technique uh, against those diseases. And uh, that's what the show is about. It's about what it can do, how you do it, when, and why. So here it is so i guess we're here to talk about asd and grafting let's maybe we can eventually get to it um (laughs) this has been fun catching up with ohio people what i'd like to start with is with the question to to anna because um you had a neat workshop last year last august about asd i think it was at your farm bob um and it was with central state university and it was demonstrating this process in a way that i'd never actually seen it in real time. And I'd like it if you would be able to describe it in words. Like, What is the ASD process and what does ASD stand for?
2: Yeah, so ASD stands for anaerobic soil disinfestation, which is a very fancy name for a somewhat simple biological process of managing diseases. Um, ASD is a three-part process in which we amend soil with a carbon source like wheat bran or molasses then you irrigate that soil to saturation, and then you cover that soil for several weeks. What we're trying to do in this process is leverage the power of microbes that live naturally in our soils to combat soil-borne pathogens. So what happens in ASD is that these soil-borne pathogens, or these soil-borne microbes, or these, sorry, not soil, I, I love soil-borne pathogens so much, I always say soil. <laughs> these, <laughs> Uh, what happens in ASD is that these uh, natural soil microbes will start to break down that added carbon source, which is food for them. And when they break it down, because we've saturated that soil, there's not much oxygen available. So then they shift to using anaerobic types of digestion. And in those anaerobic processes, there's a lot of nasty byproducts that are produced, like acetic acid, um, butyric acid. We have volatile organic compounds. So it's the lack of oxygen and all these nasty byproducts that are produced that kill off soil-borne pathogens. So okay. I like to think about anaerobic soil disinfestation as a type of biological control. So we're using beneficial microbes to control diseases in our systems.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's a it sounds like it's a, a bit of a biofumigation type of situation yeah. too, but um, but it's not really. When I think of fumigation, I think of a gas and this is actually the absence of gas. Yes. So, yeah,
2: there are gases produced like methane uh, oh. and carbon dioxide. But okay. what makes ASD different from biofumigation is that we have that added flooding and also the carbon sources that we're using.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Usually in a biofumigation, we're using something like a mustard or a brassica. And then you get the production of toxic compounds called isothiocyanates. And, you know, in the absence of water in the soil and with tarpene, those isothiocyanates will volatilize and kill off soil-borne pathogens. Um, so there's some interest. You can use these mustards as carbon sources in ASD and maybe get a little bit of a combined impact, but um, that's how those two processes differ is really what carbon sources you use and then the presence or absence of water.
0: Okay, okay. So these, these microbes that, enjoy an environment that doesn't have any oxygen in it are they is that their prime way of operating or do they switch from breathing oxygen to not breathing oxygen and then by or, or is it like a moving in of organisms that can tolerate that environment do they yeah, actually that's move really,
2: it's a really good question and one thing i love about asd and why we have lots of things to still study is the microbial ecology and changes in microbial interactions that we see in anaerobic disinfestation are really complicated. Okay. So when we first put that carbon source in the soil, there are, there's still a bit of oxygen left. So we have some really fast colonizers like some fungi and some quick growing bacteria like Pseudomonas that start to break down those carbon sources and then, as that environment starts to shift to anaerobic, we have microbes that can operate with and without oxygen, like bacillus. Um, those will start to take over. And then, when we go fully anaerobic, we have our true anaerobes, like Clostridium, that start to dominate these populations. And the biology of Clostridium is really wacky. Um, they yeah. produce all kinds of nasty byproducts uh, that are what we want to control these pathogens.
0: Is clostridium the same thing we hear about when we're canning food?
2: Yes, it is. Okay. But, you know, as humans, you know, we, we do focus a lot on the negative of the microbial world. Uh-huh. Um, and the majority of clostridium, just like the majority of microbes, are non-pathogenic. Okay. But there are clostridium in soils, not every soil, um, such as uh, clostridium botulinum, clostridium tetani. That do cause human diseases
0: okay I'm not trying to freak anyone out. I was just trying to draw a connection yeah of- and that's
2: that's where most people um, identify okay are familiar with Clostridium
0: okay, okay how long has ASD been a thing?
2: yeah, so ASD was originally developed in Japan and the Netherlands in the late 1990s and two first- separate
0: two separate Japan two, and the Netherlands
2: yeah two two separate um, regions of the world that really interestingly kind of came up with the same process. So I mean, Japan, Netherlands, total opposite side of the world. Mm -hmm. But really, when you read the original papers, what they were trying to do was, you know, we knew that flooding would reduce soil borne diseases, but not very well. We knew that organic inputs such as cover crops or crop residue can reduce diseases. And we know if you tarp soil and keep it warmer and solarize it, you know that can reduce diseases and so both sets of researchers thought why not all of these <laughs> kind of combine them into one treatment and then you get this really unique biolo- biological situation in which this combination of treatments works way better than any individual component okay of treatments
0: okay I see the uh, when you mentioned the flooding yeah. um, uh, being a technique in itself I recognize that one of the factor, one of the things that ASD seems to treat are nematodes, and with flooding alone, I would think would make it that worse. At least that's my observation on some of the muck soils in Michigan where carrots are grown, where the water gathers is where the nematodes are tend to be the highest pressure. But I guess then when you combine that with this carbon source and the covering, that uh, kind of uh, re- it ends up reducing them? Is that what I'm hearing?
2: Yeah. So the the thing with flooding and water is, you know, while that is an effective treatment for some soil pathogens, like you said, it's not effective for all. Um, Mm -hmm. And why flooding is so difficult is usually uh, most of these soil warm pathogens, they're used to surviving in low oxygen conditions and water is just a great way for them to spread. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you need that additional input in these systems of that carbon source combined with your indigenous microbes in the soil to make those nasty byproducts products that really are what most is, makes ASD most effective. And interestingly, uh, root-knot nematodes seem to be the most sensitive to anaerobic soil disinfestation. Uh, we've okay. gotten really good reductions in root-knot nematodes, even at really cool soil temperatures of about 15 Celsius. So we're talking mid sixties Fahrenheit, um, really cool soil treatments, um, and nematodes will still be killed off.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, and now, uh, Bob, how long have you been using ASD then knowing that, or how did you learn about it? And then why did you choose to, to run with it? And when did you start?
4: You may have to help me with this a little bit. I'm trying to think whether,
2: you, you you were you participated, I think, in our 2016 round of experiments.
4: So yeah, yeah. so through so kind of through and of course, you know, we we were having some issues with tomatoes. We hadn't been growing tomatoes, I don't think, too long, but saw the potential, you know, and had heard the stories of other high tunnel growers, you know, with the lack of rotation and and kind of that kind of a that single crop. You know, that we just saw on the horizon we were going to have issues. So we were trying to be a little preemptive, mm-hmm. proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anna was working, I think, with some Mennonite growers, maybe two at the time. Yeah, we work with a lot.
2: Most of our growers are Amish and conservative Mennonite.
4: So we thought we would kind of partner up as well to see how it, you know, of course, our soil type is very different in our high tunnel. Um, and of course, everything was was in field production here at the research station so you know it wasn't in a controlled environment like our high tone or so so yeah so we were eager to participate and um, it was really interesting to see um, kind of the differences and how it worked and kind of saw some of the challenges and tried to figure out how it would work into our cropping system and so yeah it gave us a chance to kind of play with it and see where, where it would fit in and how it would be beneficial for us.
0: Okay. And you have one tunnel.
4: Yeah. We just have the one tunnel. So uh, it's, it's just, um trying to think it's like a 25 by 50. So it's not that big, you know, just a, just for us to do enough tomatoes that we have a little roadside stand. And then we also sell a few through one of the local produce markets. Mm I have one specialty retail outlet that we, we'd stock as well through the season. So, and we, obviously we were trying to hit, hit the early market. So that for us, initially we thought maybe we would try and combine it with some greens production. So that was the other thing, trying to figure out how ASD fit in with, if we were going to follow tomato production with greens, how could we fit, how could we fit ASD into that very narrow window be-
0: mm-hmm. between
4: those two crops?
0: Yeah, you've got a tight turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah, I've got a lot of uh, Amish and Mennonite growers here in Michigan. I think most would identify as Amish. Um, and they do hoop house tomatoes for auction. And they're they're chasing the early market as well. And then they all end up with the glut in uh, yep. August. And some of them do a second planting that they they take through November and to see the price go up again a little bit. Yeah. But many of them don't. And then they'll retire it uh, August or September, uh, and then they'll kind of just prep it for winter, which sometimes means cover crops and sometimes doesn't. But um, I could see, yeah, if, if, if you wanted to then follow up with a winter lettuce or spinach crop, you've got a pretty tight turnaround because you got to get those in by like mid September in order for them to be yep. reaching that harvestable stage when everything just stops growing. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And that, I mean, that's a good point because the ASD treatment takes four weeks. And, you know, when you talked about that glut of tomatoes in August and September, it's the same situation for growers in Ohio. A lot of times they'll just, you know, say we're done, you know, we're not getting money from these tunnels Mm -hmm. anymore. So we'll pull those crops early. And that's when we see, you know, we'll see treatments, August, September, October, some of our growers have enough tunnels that, you know, they'll leave one out of production and then they'll do ASD when they have an opportunity um, within the season. Uh, and that's especially, the treatment is more effective the warmer you can keep that tunnel. Mm-hmm. So it's still, we've still seen good results in warmer Octobers, but, you know, if you can get that in September, you're, you're more guaranteed to have good results of the treatment.
0: Do you know of anybody who will actually turn on the heater to ensure that this this happens in a timely manner?
2: Um, so most of our growers, there's only been one year that we had a really cold October uh, that would have required heaters, but I don't think the heater would get the soil to the temperatures you'd want.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: and most of the time with enough sun, if you close up that tunnel, it's going to stay warm enough during the day.
0: Yeah, now, I think it'd be, yeah. it'd be, it'd be Perhaps a sunk cost, I think, to heat all that air space mm-hmm. just to try to raise the soil temperature a little bit. Yeah.
2: And that's one reason why, unfortunately, in a temperate region, like a spring treatment would delay your planting too much. It's just even with the solar radiation, you're not going to get those tunnels hot enough. Usually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get those tunnels warm enough long enough because you'd want soil temperatures above 68 Fahrenheit um, for a period of three to four weeks.
0: Yeah. And yet, tomatoes go in. Some of of them are going in in March and some late February. So yeah, there'd be, yeah, you need to get things ready for tomatoes to go in uh, in the fall. That'd be your best opportunity. Um, So you mentioned time about four weeks and I understand that temperature plays a role here too. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. So we have found that if you can maintain a temperature of, let me, let me Google. Give me one second. I'll start this answer. All my, all my scientific <laughs> studies are in Celsius. So I'm like, I'll tell you in Celsius. <laughs> <Hold on>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we we've done a study and we found that like what most consistently gives you good results is if you can maintain four weeks of treatment in a temperature range, of about 75 to 77 Fahrenheit. Um, you'll still get reduction in diseases if you have cooler temperatures, but if you have cooler soil temperatures, you want to think about extending your treatment to maybe about six weeks. So, you know, if you have temperatures at 68 Celsius, you know, if you're doing an October treatment, keep those soils covered because but microbial activity will increase as temperature increases. So uh-huh. for, if we have lower temperatures, we want to give those microbes more time to do their work.
0: All right. That, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. We hear about that a lot um, on the food safety side of things, uh, especially when it comes to like compost and paying temperature, paying attention to temperature and rotation of compost before you put them onto a crop that's eaten uh, mm-hmm. raw. Um, Cause yeah, the hotter things get the more, th- the more things really cook. And by cook, I mean, they replicate, but then you can get to a temperature where they, they die off as well. So you kind of have to push it, you know? Um, but this is obviously different because this is anaerobic. Um, it's a little different than a compost pile, but that's good to know. Okay. So when you say 75 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit, is that sort of like an average? So your nighttime can get down to mid sixties yeah, and your daytimes that's, can that's, get in the eighties.
2: Yeah. It's an average temperature. And again, you know, you're not going to have a nice controlled 75 to right. 77. That's not realistic. You know, mm-hmm. if you have temperatures of in the 80s or 90s, if you keep that tunnel sealed up, that's
3: mm-hmm.
2: great. Microbes okay. are pretty resilient, um, so they'll just keep eating away at, you know, what you've given them, and they'll keep producing nasty mm-hmm. byproducts.
0: Okay, so the hotter, the better, then. The so hotter, if you, the better,
2: but okay. you know, if you're doing a fall treatment, it's not always realistic to get soil temperatures yeah. in the 80s.
0: Okay, so 75 to 77 is ca- kind of like a the lowest you want to go for that four week window
2: it's your safe zone to get good Mm -hmm. efficacy against a a range of pathogens Mm -hmm. like i had said earlier you know nematodes we still see reductions even at lower soil temperatures in the mid 60s um but you know if you're you have something more stubborn like a fusarium or a corky root rot you know you're gonna want higher temperatures
0: okay so don't bother opening the vents if it's getting too hot okay yeah, uh, good leave, to
2: those, know. leave those tunnels sealed up. Make sure you're capping the ends. Make sure you've got the sidewalls rolled down. Uh, you're, make a giant incubator for those microbes.
0: Yeah. Sounds fun. So uh, the carbon source is, is the second piece you said. What, what effect does the carbon source have? I, I think in, the, in a paper that you had sent to me, you were working with a wheat-based product. I don't remember if it was yep. mids or germ or yeah. bran, but then also uh, molasses.
2: Yep. So we use bran and mid. So carbon source is, you know, most important decision you can make. And there are some oh, wow. safe, okay. safe choices for you. Um, first thing I want to talk about for carbon sources is the rate. Uh, in ASD, we have to use a pretty high rate of carbon source. So we found that nine tons per acre will give us consistently good results. You know, that's quite a bit, but if you're looking in a high tunnel, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not as much as you think. And that's why ASD works really well in high tunnels is because you have a limited area to treat. And so that helps reduce your costs. Right. So these high rates of nine tons per acre pretty consistently reduce diseases. We have found that a half rate of four and a half tons per acre does still reduce disease, but not to the same extent as that high rate of nine tons per acre. So if you want to do ASD more frequently, say every year, every two years, you might consider um, using that lower rate to save money.
0: Okay. Bob, what have you been, what kind of um, materials have you been using and what rates have you observed or sort of fallen into as like a regular practice?
4: We follow those rates that, that Ann is recommending. Now we started, I think in, this, in the first year or maybe two years that we did it, I believe we used Wheat Brand. And then since then, we've transitioned, I think, over the last four years or whatever, maybe more, we've used the wheat mids. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, we've always used the molasses. um, But, yeah, we've always we've always followed the rate that Anna's recommended.
2: Yeah, wheat bran and wheat mids have we've consistently gotten good results from both of those carbon sources and nutritionally, they're very similar But wheat mids are about half the cost of wheat bran. So a lot of times it comes to what can you find at your local feed mill. And for most growers in Ohio, they can get mids. um, And it's a lot cheaper for them to apply apply the treatment with mids.
4: I'm
0: wondering if there are other byproducts um, out there um, of any volume. Like in Michigan, I'm thinking sugar beet pulp might be one that you'd have to kind of figure out how to like get into their system because they do particular things with it. It ends up in like the settling ponds and stuff. And I don't know then how you recover it. So you'd have to get creative, I guess.
2: Yeah, and that brings up a good point. You know, most of the carbon sources we use in ASD are agricultural byproducts, you know, because you're using it at such a high rate, you want something low cost Mm -hmm. and that's easy to get locally. And that's why, you know, even though ASD is used in California and Florida in the U.S., when we started looking at it in the Midwest, we had to look at a totally different suite of carbon sources that we had available to us here. And you know, like you said, in Michigan, you have this unique uh, product. In Ohio, we also have unique products like tomato pomace from the tomato oh. um, processing processing mm. tomato industry in Northwestern Ohio. Um, mm. There's there's lots of unique local products that could be used.
0: Yeah. Okay. So when I'm thinking of like wheat mids and wheat bran, I'm thinking of a dry product and some of this other stuff like the, the tomato pumice and the sugar beet pulp might be more on the wet side. Do you, is the, <clears throat> Would you then reduce the amount of molasses you would add with a wet carbon source or what do you think there?
2: Yeah. So usually when we When I talk about that rate, I'm talking about your main solid carbon source would be nine tons per acre.
0: The main solid stuff. Yeah.
2: And then what the molasses role is, is kind of as a lighter fluid for the microbial activity. Cause you know, that has more free sugar like products that you think of microbes as little, tiny, greedy children. They're gonna go for the sugar first. <laughs> and so once they start eating that sugar, eventually they're gonna use up all those nice, easily digestible so sugars and then they have to move on to the main course, which is your main carbon source. Um, now for you know like a, like you said, a wet carbon source, um, I haven't seen any studies in the Midwest, but you know you could pretty easily figure out how much either wet or dry pomace or molasses or uh, sugar beet debris you would need for those treatments.
0: Okay. So molasses is the lighter fluid. That's a good way to remember that. And what's the rate that you would recommend there for the molasses?
2: So molasses, you can get away with a rate of one to four and a half tons per acre. And that's, again, in addition to your nine ton per acre of uh, solid carbon source. Um, so, you know, depending on temperature, if it's a little bit colder, I would err towards using a higher rate because then you have more sugar to get those microbes going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can see this. It's really cool when we do these trials. If we have molasses in our treatment, those treatments are one to two, or one to three degrees warmer than our treatments without molasses. You know, those, those microbes are really doing their work mm-hmm. when you add that additional molasses.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, that's good. Well, oh, go ahead, Bob.
4: Yeah. one point, just to mention, and we'll get Anna's take on this, but, you know, I would, would caution a little bit, you know, as far as the carbon source goes, I think a big consideration too, is you have to be thinking about the incorporation of that product into your soil. So that's the one nice thing about wheat germ or wheat mids. It is, it's very easy to incorporate, you know, into that soil structure Mm -hmm. um, down to the depth that you're looking for. Now, I don't know how, you know, typically we would apply that out and then we would go ahead and, and use a tiller to go ahead and till that in or some sort of a rotavator. You know, we're not going that deep. We're still staying in that typical root zone for the crop. But I don't know if that has any bearing, Anna, when you're dealing with a wet or a more moist, I don't know, a fibrous. I, I'm thinking of, of like a beet pulp as more of a fibrous, carbon source. I don't know if that's true true for the product you're mentioning, but I don't know. Anna, would it be a challenge to get that incorporated?
2: I mean, it all depends on your equipment. So, I mean, for example, the workshop we did in Bob's high tunnel, that was a really good demonstration of a small-scale high tunnel mm-hmm. production uh, application of anaerobic soil disinfestation. Um, in general, you want to work that carbon source to a depth of six to eight inches. That's what's realistic for most growers with the tillage equipment they have. So the nice bonus, if you have a liquid carbon source, like molasses is, you know, that'll penetrate the soil a little bit deeper. So you're getting that carbon source down to that depth of maybe 12 inches, which is great. You get a little bit of a bonus from that. Um, but yeah, it. It's all about adapting to what works for your system for incorporating those carbon sources. I know that you can buy pelletized
0: sugar beet. Um, Oh, I haven't seen that, but it makes it would make sense.
2: Yeah, I've seen it for sale. I mean, obviously your costs are going to go way up, but I've seen pelletized sugar beet. um, uh, Is it bagasse that's left over from the sugar production? I don't know if that's what it's called technically, but I sell sure. it as animal feed. This, and this is, this is one way for people to find carbon sources It's go to your local feed store um, or feed mill um, yeah. and look at what they have available for animal feed.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, oh gosh. I had a question. Oh, the molasses and incorporation, what kind oh, of yeah. effect, what kind of effect does that have on the equipment that you're using? I'm thinking of molasses as being sort of a sticky, maybe uh, frustrating material to work with. In that way, like I've I've known it, I've I've seen it used in sprayers a lot. It also seems like an Amish type of thing. I'm not sure why it is. I don't hear many other people talking about molasses applications or the agricultural uses of molasses. But in that community, I hear about it fairly frequently, usually through a sprayer. But getting it incorporated with with metal tools, rota rotational tools. I'm just curious what the, what yeah, so the, like.
2: Molasses is always an adventure to work with. So, <laughs> and again, it's, it's based on scale. Okay. Um, you know, Bob's high tunnel, we can pretty easily spread the molasses. So one, always make sure you dilute your molasses because you're not going to take oh,
0: it, dilute. molasses
2: and just dump it on your soil. That would be a mess. So we suggest diluting it one to three or one to four with water um, and it goes into the water pretty easily. And then in, in a in a high tunnel of bob size, it takes us what maybe 15 minutes to put it in watering cans and just walk it through. Okay. Now, if you have a lot of tunnels, you're not going to want to do that. So I've seen suggestions of putting it in backpack sprayers, putting it in uh, you know like a sprayer cart. But it's molasses. It's great at clogging things. So that's
0: does it settle, Does it settle out in the column it as does. well? Okay. Yeah.
2: And so, you know, if you can keep that stirring, that's great, but molasses is a bit tricky. And so we don't, what you want to do in ASD is you want to make sure that you have that first solid carbon source tilled into the soil. And, you know, if you're going to treat beds, you want to have your beds formed at this point. And then what you'll do is you come back and put the molasses either onto that flat ground or the beds so,
0: Oh, you're not actually then reincorporating. No.
2: So the nice oh. thing about it being a liquid is you're just going to rely on that liquid to soak itself. into I the soil. see. Yeah. And then when you add your irrigation later, that'll also help molasses mm. penetrate deeper into the soil. Um, somebody asked once if it would be washed away and I was just like, well, think about how sticky molasses is. And it's pretty good at sticking in your soil. You know, it'll get taken down the soil profile, but You're not going to wash it away when you add your irrigation
3: in
0: these systems. Okay, so surface applied molasses not incorporated, and that 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 was great to hear. I was a little worried about the of what the tiller would look like at the end of that. Oh yeah, that'd be.
2: (laughs) You should be more worried what your boots look like after molasses.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) In the video of your workshop, I saw you. Uh, you went like elbow deep into some container to mix it up. Is that necessary? Um, or is that just what well, well, you had to I, do that I would day? recommend
2: using like a stir stick or
0: something. Like a broom PVC. handle or something? Yeah.
2: Broom <laughs> handles or PVC pipe is great for stirring stuff. <laughs> I'm a very hands-on type of woman. So <laughs> just get in there and get that mixed up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Okay. Bob, I got a question for you then. Um, you, you were part of that workshop. You've been doing this for a few years now. And I'm wondering now that you've, it's become part of a routine on your, on your farm. What has it, has it resulted in, in a, in a sacrifice of any other types of processes that would occur at that same time? I guess another way to ask this is, does it get in the way of other things that you'd be doing around then?
4: I think Anna alluded to it earlier and and I think probably other growers you know we typically grow or we we grow a combination we mostly have grown determinant type tomatoes in our high tunnel, and i you know we can talk diseases in addition, but unfortunately a lot of the we we've had a, a big problem for us has been leaf mold, so we have to get varieties that are more or more disease resistance um at least toward leaf mold we've had to use a couple of different indeterminate varieties so as you can imagine and even a couple of years with our determinant types when it came to august you know we were we were actually having a whole new set of fruit coming on so it is it's a challenge to try and figure out when that sweet spot is when yeah, your, your market, price-wise, your market may not be the best. So, it depends a little on your market. If you still got a decent market and pr- prices are fairly good, it's hard to pull the plug, especially when you see a really nice set of fruit coming on. So, that's probably, on, on your main crop, I find that's probably your biggest challenge. So, for us, if we're we typically go into our high tunnel a little bit later. I do have heat in my high tunnel, so I've got the ability to do some heating in the early, early months if I need to. But while I'd like to go into Mar, you know, start transplanting in March, for us it's just not feasible with fuel costs. So I generally am looking at April one. So I figure at very most, I'll I'll, I'll provide some heat if necessary up until you know maybe a month month and a half at most Mm -hmm. so if i do that i'm still having pretty good production because for us i really need to be shutting down and pulling those tomatoes by i would like to have them out by early august Mm -hmm. because my goal is if we come in with greens i'd like to have those greens transplanted in about that end of that first week for us
0: um end of that first week of September you said
4: yeah I'm typically shooting for end of that first week of September to transplant that greens crop in
0: so you'd like for the majority of the month of August devoted to this ASD process yep okay and I suppose if your market was still hungry for tomatoes one technique you might have and many growers I work with do this they they have a field planting perhaps more than one that is really it's part of the problem with the glut to begin with because people who don't have hoop houses, they just have field tomatoes. So their stuff comes in in August alongside everybody else's. So that's part of the, the glut thing, but, um, but yeah, I guess it's, you're not using as as, as expensive a real estate. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't hurt as bad to want to take out the hoop house tomatoes. I suppose if you've got a backup crop in the field, Right. We keep that thing going. I could see that. Okay. Um,
4: Probably, I would say we probably lose, I would say a good two to three weeks of, of good tomatoes that we lose by trying to get them out. August one or very early August. Okay. So, so on my primary crop, I would say that's, that's one sacrifice you make now, even on, so then on the trying to think then, then again, so then on your secondary greens crop, Again, you're making a little sacrifice because you're probably getting into your high tunnel with those greens a little bit later than you'd ideally like to be having them started. So I can't really think of any other real trade-offs other than those right off.
0: On your farm, it sounds like this would be a problem every other year, right? You you do this biennially?
4: Initially, we did it annually, so okay. we were pretty much going every season. But I think, and again, Annie, you can weigh in on this. I think maybe over the last three to four years, I think, in talking with you, we decided we could, we could bring that back to every other year. So, yes, oh, go ahead, Bob. So I don't know. You know, I would assume. I don't know. Do you have numbers? Did you guys do some research on that to know how efficacy yeah. on
2: Based, based on what we've seen, so we did a survey of soil-borne diseases in 2017, and some of the information we got from that survey was um, how long have you been growing tomatoes, and it seemed like it took about three years of continuous tomato production until these key soil-borne diseases, you know, we're talking about corky root rot, verticillium wilt, black dot root rot, and root nut before those started to become a major pro- problem. So we're talking probably every three years if you're using it as a maintenance treatment, um, and really, you know, as Bob said, getting those tomatoes out in August, you know, that works for him because he's got his soil-borne diseases under control now. But unfortunately, what we've seen is for growers who have a major soil-borne disease issue, their tomatoes aren't going to make it till August. Um, you know, if you have soil-borne diseases at the level that ASD has now become your last ditch effort to control those diseases and and it will, it'll knock them back. Mm-hmm. Your tomatoes are going to lose vigor about uh, mid July and you're mm-hmm. not going to have plants producing in August, unfortunately.
0: So that much of a time conflict there because the tomatoes are done yeah,
2: when you have <laughs> okay. no tomatoes in your tunnel there's not much of a conflict so yeah especially this this is how we started doing as looking into asd in ohio was we had two major growers and both had been growing tomatoes in the same location for eight plus years and their crop was petering out by july you know, first they had noticed a gradual decline in yield. And then it just came that they couldn't produce that crop as long as they normally did. And when I went to look at their sites, uh, we found just this menagerie of soil borne diseases.
0: Yeah. Well, um, there's one comment I want to make and then move on to another question that's directly related to what you just said. Um, I can see one conflict at, with the time of year when you have to do this. And that is if you have a a whole bunch of other crops and they all need attention in the field, perhaps. All right. So there's the harvest of the cucumbers and the eggplants and the peppers and the broccoli and you know what sweet corn, whatever else is happening. So I'm curious, like what, what time commitment it was to get the whole thing done uh, on your farm, Bob, in that video that you put together last year, you'd said one of the, one of the pieces was about 15 minutes, but like, um, maybe that was the molasses application, but the whole, the whole thing from start to finish if you weren't filming it for a class or whatever how long do you think it would take
4: Well, as far as you know the initial gathering of supplies you know you probably got a couple hours in going to your feed store and, and acquiring the molasses and the and the you know the carbon source um once you're actually you know in the high tunnel and starting the process it actually goes quite fast i mean the you know for me probably the initial step is is probably the most physically challenging and that's that's the actually kind of I try and go through and and, and do kind of some pre tillage
3: mm-hmm. you know
4: so trying to till out the entire the entire high tunnel so you know areas that you've used as kind of your your walk areas you okay. Know, that takes a good bit of time trying to break up any compaction that you've caused over the preceding season, um, trying to get that soil in a pretty good tilth, I would say. Um, so working that, that you know, tillage a couple different directions to make sure you've got that soil in good condition. Once you've done that, which so I probably, you know, a, a good hour and a half, two hours, probably doing some of that pre-tillage. As far as, the, again, the incorporation of the organic matter and um, the mixing and incorporation of the molasses, that goes very quick, too. I mean, what, and I would say within an hour and a half, two hours, yeah. we when easily we up, had... Yeah
2: when we set up research trials, it only takes us about half a day. And actually it's easier to set up uh, ASD treatment on an entire high tunnel compared to like a right. research trial. Um, and, you know, one thing in ASD, if you're setting up ASD and you also form the beds for next season, because that's, that's one nice way to do ASD is, you know, you'll apply the carbon sources, you'll form your beds, lay your drip tape, lay the plastic. And the nice thing is, you know what? You don't have to do that next season. So you're saving yourself some time yeah. in the future.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that. So you got to cover the soil. Uh, you can either saturate it and then cover it, or you can cover it and then saturate it. And if yeah. you're already going to be putting a crop that is going to use plastic mulch in there, it to me it seems like the perfect. It's 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 almost seamless. It makes mm-hmm. it makes this process. I mean, it has to be a part of the process for it to work, but it's also a thing you have to do anyway.
2: Exactly. It just,
0: to me, to me, it seems, I mean, you've got kind of of beautiful.
2: Yeah. And you know, so, so Bob and Bob and Jenny's production system, they plant flat and flat beds on the ground, but you know, most of our growers are doing raised beds and especially, you know, if you have a bed former, you know, you till you take your bed former through that bed former has a plastic and a drip tape layer, you know, you're done in about two hours. It's wonderful. Um, and that's again, why when we set up these research trials, we're throwing beds by hand. So it's a lot of physical labor for us, but um, you know, if, if you've got, you know, mechanization and even Amish with horse drawn bed layers, you know they can get these trials or get this treatment set up relatively quickly in their tunnel. You know, I'm mm-hmm. saying half a day and what Bob said a lot of that pre-treatment you have to do for the tunnels, ripping out plants, baseline tillage that that can take a little while but it's not too bad you know total time input probably a day so if Mm -hmm. you can budget for a day of work um you'll probably have no problem fitting into your schedule
0: okay okay
2: and the other nice thing if it's raining and you can do it in a high tunnel,
0: hey that's a smart thing
2: a good rainy day project
0: yeah (laughs) just don't leave
2: your wheat mids out in the rain
0: <laughs> that's really that's a really smart use of a rainy day. Yeah.
4: Um, the other component if I can just add kind of a point on the final point on that would be as far as I mean it's seems like waiting is your biggest for us is the biggest component. The actual physical labor is fairly short duration, but then it's the irrigation and the waiting. So mm you have to remember that after you've done that physical labor then you've got that flood or overhead irrigation where you're driving that soil to the anaerobic state so depending on your system for us on on a on flat ground in our high tunnel we probably this past season i would say we probably irrigated for at most 3 hours so is that
0: right to to, pro- get, to get to the initial anaerobic like you're at saturation about three hours to reach that. But was there, was there maintenance irrigation that you needed to, to keep it that way for the, for the duration of that time?
4: Basically how we've generally done it was the end of the day after we did our, our incorporation, we ran our overhead irrigation for about an hour and a half. Then because you're already late in the day, we come back first thing in the morning, kick the water on again, Run it for about another hour and a half and then immediately cover. So that was overhead on open for overhead. field type thing. Yeah. Okay. I've, not, I've not had the experience with, you know, with the plastic culture and, and, you know, any kind of, you know, using drip tape or whatnot. So I can't, I can't weigh in on that. But
0: um, I have a feeling it would take a little longer. I don't, I'd have to think about how long it would actually take. And if you're on, if you're on beds too, I can't help but wonder if that would, it would drain and you might have to do some maintenance.
2: Yeah. So what Bob brought up what I suggest. So again, you want, you want that saturation to go to the depth that you incorporated the carbon source. So six to eight inches deep, if you can get 12 inches deep. So the nice thing is usually you can just take a shovel, pull it, put it in the soil and pull it back and see how saturated your soil is. Mm -hmm. But what Bob had mentioned is, you know, do that initial flooding, let that water settle, and then come back and do a shorter flooding. And, you know, it's very soil texture dependent. It's dependent on the compaction of your soil. So when I talk to growers, my recommendation is make sure those soils are saturated to a depth of six to eight inches. And we don't see, we haven't seen the need for maintenance irrigation during the treatment because- What's really important is you're going to have enough water with those, you know, maybe that first initial flood and then the next day adding a little more, those soils are going to go anaerobic with that amount of water and they'll stay moist enough. Um, I haven't, I've never, we've run quite a few trials across the state on a lot of different soils Mm -hmm. and even on a really sandy soil, um, those soils were still pretty wet when we uncovered them four
0: weeks later. Oh, that's great to hear. Okay. Yeah. So it really is. It, it sounds like it's a set it and forget it kind of thing. Almost like you, yeah. once you have it saturated, you've got the carbon source incorporated, the covers on, it's just waiting. And there's really yeah, not much else you, to
2: do. You might not forget it because ASD yes. as it becomes more effective smells terrible. <laughs> so so
0: you, oh, We've gotten to this piece. Yeah. Okay. How bad <laughs> is it? And is it, a problem like with neighbors or, or tell me about it.
2: Not, not that bad, especially because one thing, if you're smelling it, especially you should have your high tunnel closed up pretty well. So hopefully you don't have a very leaky high tunnel. And hopefully if you've done a good job covering and sealing your soils, most of those gases are going to be trapped. Um, and again, you want those gases trapped because that's, what's killing the pathogens.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: like, for example, in Bob's high tunnel, they have it sealed up nice and tight, but you can pop your head in and know that it smells pretty bad. Um, so what it smells like, I grew up in Minnesota land, 10,000 lakes. And when lakes go anaerobic in the soil, they smell pretty nasty. Um, it's, it's like, uh, it's worse than that. It, I like to say it smells like the rear end of a cow um it's it's pretty odiferous
0: yeah i've dug into some horse manure piles of my neighbor <laughs> to uh make my own compost and stuff but he doesn't turn it right he's just making a big pile and so yeah in the middle of that it's pretty ripe it's pretty ripe. Yeah,
2: it's, it's pretty ripe and from from a research standpoint um when we talk about these different carbon sources we use if you use a different carbon source at the end of asd you have very different scents <laughs> um So with with wheat mids or wheat bran, um, it's a pretty stinky final product that you'll have. Now, this also brings up a good point. Um, It smells terrible. Those are some residual byproducts of ASD. So before you plant into those soils, you want to give those soils some time to air out. So if you're planting in beds, you want to make your planting holes. Let those soils sit for five to seven days. Um, You can flush them a little bit with uh, fresh water or fresh irrigation water and that can help speed up the process, but you don't want to go right into those stinky soils.
0: Okay. That's good to know. That's really good to know. Um, and is there any residual fertility effects on this?
2: Yeah. So there are a lot of our Amish growers have seen, um, like a nice boost in plant vigor due to some, uh, added nutrients from your carbon sources. That's one thing that, um, We haven't quantified really well with my research, but we do have a new collaboration with researchers at Penn State and Virginia Tech. And part of that project we're looking at uh, coming up with fertility recommendations for growers in the Midwest, Northeast, and Southern United States for vegetable production, particularly in high tunnels, if they're using ASD process. Because we know there's a need, um, and hopefully uh, so. Give us a couple of years and then we'll have a better answer for you.
0: (laughs) I mean, honestly, even without ASD, it it could be useful to have a guide. There isn't a lot available and there's some basic uh, lessons, I guess, that people have shared and that you just, you don't need as much fertility anyway, in a hoop house situation. Mm -hmm. It's not exact. I haven't seen much. I haven't seen like different recommendations and extension publications too much. Um, So it'd be useful in, yeah, whether it's ASD or not, just hoop house fertility. (laughs) It'd be really good. Yeah.
2: And it's it's definitely a need Um, in our study that we're, we're starting um, first field trials will go in in spring and we're looking at a couple different carbon sources. So again, we're looking at wheat mids, soybean meal, distillers, dried greens, and so um, each of these differ in how much nitrogen they have and other micronutrients and yeah. uh, macronutrients. And so hopefully we'll come up with good recommendations for um, different carbon sources.
0: Okay.
4: Kind of an additional benefit, I would say, too, is that we haven't talked about it, is kind of your, your soil texture, the tilt mm. of the soil. I oh, really? Think it's definitely improved yeah. as well. It's, it's kind of like adding an additional, you know, like a compost like a leaf mold or whatever, you know, cause the, the texture of the soil is really nice. When you go back into that, that bed or that flat yeah. ground after the, after the treatment's over. You're right and that's,
2: that's probably one of the most notable, noticeable things that most of our growers have commented on when we do trials at their, on their farms, uh-huh. um, is that they've noticed the soil is a lot more workable and, um, I haven't done any direct measures, but like my current explanation is you no. Know, you have wheat midds is a pretty fluffy byproduct. So you work it into the soil, and then the microbes pretty much destroy it completely. So you have all these nice kind of fluffy pockets, yeah, um, that are left in the soil, and that helps with the workability of the soil.
0: Oh, that sounds like a neat a neat benefit. Um, that's not something that was on my radar from learning no, about this process at all.
2: It's not something we you know thought of either, um, but. It's something we've heard repeatedly from, from growers.
0: Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, well, we're getting close to the end here. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but there was one other topic I wanted to just touch on. And that is um, in relation to growers growing in hoop houses, particularly tomatoes for year after year, after year style production, what you had mentioned before about, about th- uh, three years is when they start to see effects of, of buildup of some of these production limiters. And once you get to eight years, 10 years, your plants just don't even make it through um, July sometimes. And that is what I saw here in my part of Michigan with some growers and what they chose to do. Prob- I don't know if they knew much about ASD at the time or not, but what they chose to do was graft and they saw immediate overnight, like over you know, one season difference, like just complete turnaround. And so that was very impressing to them. And so they've continued to do it. And it sounds like both of these techniques would result in improve, an improved situation. I, I can't help but wonder if, if you just graft and that's the only thing you did and you use the same rootstock every time, eight years later, are you going to run into the same problem?
2: Um, potentially because unfortunately those rootstocks aren't resistant to all the diseases we're finding and probably the key disease that rootstocks wouldn't protect you from would be root, knot nematode.
0: I see. Because yeah. I saw in your paper, the Northern one is the one that exactly. isn't affected. And that's exactly. the one that's the problem around. Exactly.
2: Here. Unfortunately, the, the dominant, you know, we found root, knot nematodes in about 50% of the high tunnels we surveyed, which is terrifying to me as a plant pathologist, but, um, rootstocks, while well, some of them will have root-knot resistance, that resistance is only to the, the southern root-knot nematode or Meloidegine incognita. Meloidegine haplo, which is our dominant root-knot nematode in these high tunnels and temperate regions, um, and there's no resistance in these rootstocks. The other thing, Colototrichum cucodes, there's also no resistance in those rootstocks. That's more of a minor disease, but, you know, we still don't understand. Maybe with root, not nematode, Colatachicum coccodes could be more of an issue, but you know, you're not gonna have. Mm. That's
0: the, the, that's that the right corky thing. root rot, right?
2: Corky uh, root rot is pyrenicata like a persis coccodes causes anthracnose in fruits. Oh, and right. so, so the, the, the reason why you should worry about Colatachicum coccodes in your soils is that you have a ton of Colatachicum coccodes in your soils. You're gonna really also increase your risk of anthracnose in your fruits. And that's going to also hurt your bottom
0: line.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, I think that these deserve, they're uh, deserve some chances to be mixed. Um, and maybe over the years we'll see growers adopting both simultaneously. Um, yeah. I, I like the idea of ASD though, in that it doesn't require you doubling up all the plants you need um, to then reduce them back to one because that's what grafting is. Right. Um I could, see that being, uh, I could see that being something that would be a huge factor in someone's decision-making. If they knew both systems well, that could be a, a no-brainer in, in terms of cost. And um, if they've got a chance to see it more, that's often what it takes is getting to see it someplace, which I really enjoyed that you did that workshop. I can share this video with people now and say, this is the thing I've been telling you about, you know, the big long word anaerobic soil, yeah, infestation, unfortunately, anaerobic soil is.
2: infestation is not a very good name, but <laughs> 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 yeah. And from a, t- like a technical expertise standpoint, ASD is definitely easier to apply than, uh, to adopt than grafting, but you know, ASD, I I'm not going to lie about it. It's a physically labor intensive process. You know, we said you can finish it and, you know, with the setup and the application about a day, you know, so it's not too much of a time commitment, but you know, it's, it's laborious. It's not like you're going out and spraying, you know, it's not that simple.
0: Right. Cool. All right. Well, Bob, Anna, I appreciate the time that you were both able to spend with me
4: today. All right. Thanks, Ben. Okay. See ya. Thanks, Thanks Bob. We'll see ya. Thanks, Anna. Yep. Bye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Well, that's that one what do you think, Natalie?
1: Yeah, I just thought it was like exciting overall. I think when, when we talk about processes like biofumigation, they can feel really overwhelming. Like it's just mm-hmm. so much work and you have to get everything perfect. And so to see a process that is similar, but much more accessible and something that a grower could just do in a day and make a huge difference. It was yeah. really exciting to learn about that and to have someone break it down. I think, especially because the name is so complicated. yeah, <laughs> it right. It seemed like it must be really hard. And it's interesting, you say like, there is this kind of three year period where things look great and then they start to go downhill. And that's exactly what we're seeing in high tunnels um, in regards to salinity buildup. And so, it, it, I don't know, that's just kind of an interesting mirror that right. both of these things kind of happen on the same time scale.
0: So that's a question, after the interview was over, uh, I had some lingering thoughts. And so one of the questions I sent to Anna after we were done was if she had noticed any effect on salinity, because in addition to um, the the diseases, which is kind of the main reason that ASD is performed, Mm -hmm. there are two other really strong effects on a greenhouse over time, and that is pH creep upwards, at least in our region, it seems yeah. like our calcareous bedrock results in well water that's alkaline. And so mm-hmm. over time you get higher pH and it doesn't wash out from rainwater because you're covered. And yeah. then salinity as well also builds up from fertilizers, conventional and organic. And they also do not really wash out because of the plastic being on all the time. So yeah. I asked her in the process of ASD, what happens to pH and salinity? And what she was able to say about pH in her Ohio trials is that it's been sort of inconsistent. But more often, what they see is no change in pH and sometimes a reduction. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't bring pH down a whole lot. And it would have a lot to do with your water quality, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If and you're doing it
1: with alkaline water, it's not going to mm-hmm. do it. But if and you can acidify that water in the process,
0: yeah. That, that would that's be an
1: interesting combination of treatments.
0: For sure. But then the salinity thing, uh, she said she didn't specifically look at that and she thought that'd be a good idea to look more into as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a side effect of this sort of saturation process. But of course, same as with pH, your, your water quality would have a lot to do with that.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: That concludes this episode of The Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Sweet. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Natalie. (laughs) Okay. I got to run. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. See ya. All right.
3: Bye. Bye.